Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Seen It All. We break down this week's biggest movie and TV news on this episode. We got Insidious, the Red Door review, Joyride review. We got Secret Invasion episode three talk and Mission Impossible rankings. Also, Indy 5, Indiana Jones flops, and we got Barbie versus Oppenheimer. Box office tracking has come online. So I want to get in and break all that stuff down. So I want to start with the Insidious, the Red Door review. And I just want to give a little history because I binge watched these movies over the past four, maybe three days. I just boom, boom, boom knocked them out because I knew I had to see this movie. It was rough. It was rough. And I thought one and two were really bland and I've seen all that stuff before. They had a few good scares there. I think my favorite scare was from the first one when you see the guy in the window above the baby's door because of Rose, Rose Burns' reaction. She was She was great in all of them. I loved her. She was like the best part. Best part of those first two Insidious movies, but they were just they were really boring, and I could tell exactly where it was going. And I just didn't, I don't love the concept of the astral thing, and they go into this area where there's it's just endless fog and stuff. It's where the the dead people live. It just I don't love that. And then three, I actually really loved three, but I also watched three at one in the morning, and I was sleep deprived, so that actually kind of made it tense for me. And I think that's why I enjoyed it. It might just be, it might just be those circumstances, but I really enjoyed it, and I like that we got to focus on a different family, somebody who I thought was more interesting. And I think it's also a lot scarier when you put a character in danger that can't do anything about it because they're injured. So that adds a level of intensity to it that I loved, and I really liked that one. Four was I think was the most unique of it, and I really like Elise, who's the main character in that one. But it I liked it the least. I think I, I didn't find it ter- typically scary, but I did like the villain in it, the key villain in this one was the best villain in all of them. I don't really like the the red the red demon that's in three of these movies. But four was most unique, but I liked it at least. Three was my favorite, and the first two were just, they were just bland. They were just bland. I've seen all this stuff before. This was a franchise that I don't ever think needs another installment. Other franchises are doing it shit much better. I really like, from the same creator who made Insidious, made The Conjuring. The Conjuring, I think, uses the same template, but does it so much better. And there's other franchises that are just doing it so much better. And I'm surprised this one is still making as much money as it does. But back to this film, I saw the trailers. I saw once in a theater because I was never interested in the Insidious franchise. And I didn't think that looked good either. I thought it just looked more of the same. And I never saw any more marketing anywhere else. And I thought the movie reflected how I thought in the trailer. It was really bad. And it's exactly all the stuff I've seen before. It was just a retread of past entries. They didn't do anything new. I, if you've watched one or two, you've seen this movie already. And they pick it up where they left off in two when everybody's forgotten all the stuff that's happened. So basically, we're reliving everything. And it got good when the revelations start to happen. But I think that's where it gets good in every movie when you finally understand what the heck's happening or the characters start to realize that. You're like, oh, finally. We're finally on the same page here because the audience is already caught up. Besides in that first one, everybody always knows what's going on as the audience members. And it kind of loses its luster whenever audiences know what's going on and the characters don't. The, the way the characters are scared is because they're scared of the unknown and, they have, and the uncertainty. The only reason the audience is scared is because you're jump scaring them and getting quiet and really getting loud or by the gross design of the demons and stuff. So the audience knows exactly what's going on, unlike the characters. So that just makes us like, oh, we got to have the characters catch up. So we spend an hour and 10 minutes of them. What is happening? And the audience is like, oh, I know exactly what's happening, which is I just I just don't think this is a franchise that's ripe 
I don't think this is the movie that this the first movie was ripe for a franchise to begin with because it just kept retreading the same stuff. And I'm okay with reach. I don't know. I'm not okay with just a full retread where they do exactly the same stuff. Nothing new. No new dimensions are added. This is it just gets it so boring. It gets so boring. It would. I do going in this film it was going to be a miracle. That I loved it. The reviews they weren't even out yet when I went and saw the movie, and I didn't. The only one I've liked was three, and three might be a caveat because I went. I watched that one in the morning, so. I don't even know if I even like that movie, but the other three, I didn't, the first two and the fourth one. And now this one, I really, really don't like, they learn stuff by the end that they should have just learned at the beginning. Their lessons they learned from the second film. I'm like, Oh, this is just agonizing to watch when you know exactly what's going on. And you're just like, why don't these characters, why is the audience, why is the director and the writer treating the audience like they don't know what's going on, which sucks. The first 30 minutes also has no scares at all. It takes, I checked my watch. I think it took 30 to 40 minutes before they actually started doing scary stuff. I mean, it was scary because it came out of nowhere because I'm like, okay, when is the scary stuff going to start? And even then, there wasn't anything particularly scary in the movie other than just quick shocking the audience with jump scares, which just seems cheap. And I just, I just, uh, just, it just was very poorly constructed. And I knew from the beginning, I was like, okay, at least Rose Byrne is in this. She's on the poster. She's, she's like the third main person on the poster. She is, when they did the opening title sequence and you see at the end, I was like, where's Rose Byrne's name? And it's the and Rose Byrne at the end. I, oh no, she's not going to be in very much this movie, is she? And she's probably in like 10, 15 minutes of this movie. I was going and hoping she would salvage this movie and she was not in it. And that makes me very sad. I mean, how could she be in it? She knew all the secrets. She could have told them if she was in the movie, then she would have had no, had an idea what was going on, which is why they shouldn't have been constructed this way. Just makes me angry. Patrick Wilson, this is directorial debut. It's probably a good thing to, ride his teeth into something he's filmed two previous movies for. Like I think that they did that with Michael B. Jordan, the Creed franchise. I think this could have been be a good jumping off point for him as long, but it just was just a retread of the past movies. So, I mean, he, he just, he did all the stuff that other directors have done. So I didn't really feel like we got to feel a sense of his directorial style, which I hope he gets to do soon. I actually want to see what kind of directorial style he brings. I think he could have a bright future, but I didn't see any of this movie, but this was because it wasn't very unique for him uh tyler something ty something the little kid from the first two films and he's from jurassic world that's and iron man 3 that's where i knew him he's more mostly the main character in this film and i never got was attached to him he kind of just seemed like a brat i mean that was what they were going for a bratty kid in the beginning because he doesn't know his own memories but just a brat and was kind of annoying i didn't think he was not the actor themselves but the character wasn't wasn't fun to follow along my one good part of this movie the one movie the one part of this movie that i loved was his friend slash roommate sinclair played by sinclair daniel i don't remember what their name is i don't remember what any of these people's names are besides ty's character was named daniel no i don't remember but oh no sinclair's daniel's character was named chris i remember that i remember her name was chris but i don't remember anyone dalton dalton was ty's name okay i got it i got dalton and chris those are the only names i remember <laughs> i was paying attention i promise i promise but sinclair daniel who plays chris was brought some energy to this franchise that it most desperately needed and i think this is like the most actually i think this is the only non-white main character in this entire franchise too which is something that i noticed when i was re-watching all these films like oh they're all white. <laughs> They're all white. And I'm glad they get some diversity in here. But she brought an energy to this franchise that desperately needed. And she's what kept me going and not just walking out of the theater because I was so bored. But no, she killed all our scenes. Her character was great. And then the other is selling the other. There's four people on the poster. There's Patrick Wilson's character. There's the Tyler's Ty's character, Dalton. I almost forgot his name again. And Rose Burns character. And then you have Elise in the background who has 
died in the second one, but was in three and four because they were prequels and they're focused on her. And I really like Elise's character. She's really, really go- cool protagonist. And they sell it her as if she's in this movie a lot based on the poster alone. See, I don't remember the trailer, but on the poster alone, I was like, okay, we're at least going to get Elise and Rose Byrne's characters. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be good. And she's probably in like five minutes, not even that. She's in like two minutes of this movie and she's on the poster. That is respectable to be in two minutes of the movie and be on the poster. When there's only four people on the poster, that's, that's respectable. Yeah, so I wish we got to see more of her, but maybe they leave stuff open for sequels. Probably. Uh, the demons, it was just the same demon from the first two movies. So I like when they do fun, crazy character designs for the demons, like in Last Key. That demon design was so cool. That was, oh, it was great. And then I don't remember, though. The, the third one had the, the guy with the oxygen mask. That was pretty cool, too. The, the red demon's been played out over this time, and they kind of leave it open in and two at the end, where I'm like, oh, are we seriously going to keep dealing with this red demon? For eternity, I think we might. <laughs> it's the same ending. It's the same movie. It's just the same movie as all the other ones. It's just ridiculous. Uh, they just literally—it's just literally just the first one again. If you want to—if you want to watch this, if you just want to watch this film, just pretend to watch it. Just go back and watch the first one. Just pretend Rose Byrne is only in twenty minutes of it. Just pretend that. And that movie wasn't even good. So this is even worse than that first movie. So <laughs> I think this is probably my least favorite of the franchise, as you can tell. And that's saying a lot for a franchise that I only like one of the movies. I don't even love that movie. I like it. And that might be because I was sleep deprived. Uh, don't go see this film. If you, the best horror movie of this year is Evil Dead Rise. So if you want to watch a good horror movie, it's on H, it's on Max Down, not HBO Max. It's on Max Down. Go watch Evil Dead Rise. It's so good. This is not, that's very thrilling. This is not thrilling in the slightest. It was not scary. Watch the third one. If you're going to watch one of this franchise and make sure to watch it past 12 a.m. And said, make sure you're sleep deprived. So these scares hit harder. It's just a bad, bad movie, and one of my least favorites of the year. Least favorites of the year. And I think it said something. Actually, first, though, I got to get my handy-dandy popcorn bucket. Let's do this Ant-Man one right here. This Ant-Man one that is oddly shaped. So, either popcorn bucket down, popcorn bucket up, or popcorn bucket up, and I filled it with a large popcorn. It is down. It is down. I didn't like this movie. Don't go see this movie. Don't recommend it. Please don't see this movie. Okay. There's not just my review on that one. Uh, the review embargo didn't lift until today, so I didn't see reviews until I got out of it and actually looked it up. And I think right now it's at a 40 to 50% Rotten Tomatoes. I think all of these movie, all the movies in this franchise are in the rotten category, so it doesn't really mean much. I don't think the studio cares at this point, because, nor the audience cares, because they know what they're getting with Insidious people. Insidious movies, and I think people are perfectly fine with that. It probably won't have good legs in the long run, because, but it won't need to, because it is projected to have a $23 million opening on a $16 million budget, so it's it's just going to make so much money. But this is a far cry from the from the $40 million opening that the second film had, I think, back in like 2013, 2015, sometime around there. I don't know. These films make so much money for the studio. Just It's very well budgeted. Look, how, look at Hollywood. You can make a well-budgeted film, and you will make a lot more money. Don't let people spend $340 million on a movie, <laughs> Indiana Jones and Fast X, but... See what you can do with a tight budget, and you will make money. Patrick Wilson's direct to, overall, Patrick Wilson's directorial debut should have been better, and I wish I would have came out loving this film. So, that's the one film that came out this week. I did a, the other film that came out was Joyride, which I already did a full review on the channel, but I thought for the podcast listeners and the people who just like the full show, i just give just a quick tidbit of my Joyride experience. My main thoughts, I did like this film. It has some of the, like, funniest things I've laughed at in entire in one in history at a movie theater. And the main one is a train scene. There's a basketball scene and a K-pop scene. The train scene had me on the floor. It caught me by surprise, but warning, if you do go see this movie, it does take a bit to get going. It takes about 30 minutes 
to get going probably i was like oh no we're gonna be stuck here because it was just raunchy to be raunchy at that point they were saying inappropriate things expecting people to laugh because of how inappropriate it was which wasn't funny so once the characters stopped being rude to one like being being awful to each other and we started getting to the laughs and the crazy set pieces that bonded them together then the movie got good lolo i thought was gonna be the main character she's just raunchy to be raunchy like her art and i didn't really find most of her jokes to be very funny ashley park i would who plays a character named audrey i didn't think she was gonna be the main character in this film but when we got to it i was like okay thank god she's the main character it's not lolo and she has the emotional arc and she has the storyline of dealing with immigration not belonging she's too chinese to be american but she's too american to be chinese so they get to deal with all that stuff. And I thought I had a great emotional in this film. The last 30 minutes, it stopped being funny, got more emotional. And I love when a comedy can do that, where they can make you laugh super hard, and then it can hit you with the feels just right after that. And then you have Cat played by Stephanie Hsu, who coming off of Everything Everall once got that Oscar nomination for. I was really, the first 20 minutes with her were just, she acted like a brat, and it was very grating on me. But once we got, once everybody stopped just being rude to each other, then it got good, and she was great by the end of this. And then Deadeye is the fourth member of their group who was kind of just weird to be weird. Like, we had Rachi be Rachi, Braddy to be Braddy, and now we have Weird to be Weird. And they're the only wholesome person in this cast, so at least they brought that, but they didn't really stand out too much to me. Uh, it's a solid film. The first three minutes, I said, drags. This versus No Hard Feelings and Cocaine Bear, the other three main comedies this year. I like this better than No Hard Feelings, but I think Cocaine Bear is still the funniest film I've seen this year and the most fun I've had in movies. And it probably almost this entire year i just had so much fun seeing that movie and i highly recommend that so popcorn bucket it's up but it's not filled with a large 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 a large i just turned into a new jerseyan or bostonian i don't know but the popcorn bucket is up but it's don't buy a large popcorn to this go see it get it hit a matinee if you're looking if you need something to cheer you up this movie's probably the only this and No Hard Feelings. Just pick between those two. I think they're both pretty good. I like this one more than Joyride, but it's going to pertain to your sensibilities, whether or not you like the raunchy stuff over... Well, actually, no. R-rated. They're both R-rated. So this one's just very, very filthy, while Jennifer Lawrence is semi-filthy, if that makes sense. So right now, it has a 92% Rotten Tomatoes. Already, our audience loved it, and it's not going to open the biggest, but they the hope is it'll play out. It has a 7 to 9 million opening list projected, which is just, I think, it's too low. Because it had a thirty-five to forty million dollar budget, so they need this thing to play out for a while. And I don't see this as a huge cash out, cash cow with the other competition. With you got all those big movies coming out soon. You got Mission Impossible, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Insidious this week, and you still have No Hard Feelings playing. So I think I think No Hard Feelings and this should be spread out just a little bit. But it's it, it's funny, but it's not funny to where I'm telling everybody else about it. We, we will see, though, I may be wrong. Audiences may just flock to this film in the word of mouth may spread, but I just I don't see this happening. But I do want these types of comedies to stay around for the long run. I love that we're having these back, and I love some diversity in the marketplace. So hopefully, hopefully it does well. And then speaking with the box office news, I want to talk about the performance of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which opened last week. And as you saw, I enjoyed the film. I really liked that film. It made my top 10 favorite, favorite movies halfway through the year, even though it's at number 10, but I still really liked it. I had a good time. I had a good time. It's on par with all the other Indiana Jones films for me. They're just they're supposed to give me a fun, joyous time, a romp, an adventure, and it gave me that. But it didn't perform well. It had a 60 million three-day opening and then 130 million global debut, about the same as The Flash. And The Flash cost about $100 million less than this. And that was a huge flop. And this... It's it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> it got a B plus cinema score, which means audiences are kind of mixed on it. This is what like Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness got. I think this is what Eternals got, just for frame of reference there. And that means it probably won't have the best legs because 
people aren't loving it. People aren't spreading the word out like they did with Top Gun Maverick, which was what they were hoping this would be a performer like. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull back in 2008 had a 272 million global start. So this is almost less than almost less than half of this. And that's just ridiculous. While Dial Destiny cost 40% more than Kingdom of Crystal Skull did. It's a budget. It started at 250, but then COVID and all the delays, it's now rumored to be at $329 million is how much they spent to budget to, to make this film. That's without marketing. And they think the realm is about hundred million for marketing too. So they, they dumped $429 million onto this movie and the budget is because there's a few reasons. They said COVID, stop and start. They had to do that a couple times. Mission Impossible is facing that dilemma too. That really added a lot. But Jurassic World Dominion kept their budget in line to $170 million. That movie made bank. And they were able to quarantine everyone well. And that's why most of it felt like on a soundstage. This doesn't feel like it's on a soundstage. Actually, no. It kind of does. Even though they filmed it on location. I that's The visuals aren't the best. But I just don't understand where that money went. Harrison Ford got paid $20 million salary. And then Steven Spielberg, who's a producer, credit producer on this film, and then James Mangold, the director, they both got paid a pretty penny. But still, $329 million for this film, I think I would have kept it to $150, maybe $100 million. It's just ridiculous how much money they spent. But as for reasons to why it performed so badly at the box office, box office, there's a few different reasons. One, Crystal Skull made audiences skeptical. I may have really enjoyed that film as much as the other ones coming from 10 years later after the fact watching it. But audiences really didn't like King of Crystal Skull. It left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths where they just wanted to keep treasure that original trilogy and not touch the anything in the future since. Also, Lucasfilm hasn't put out a film in four years. It's been a minute since they put out a film, and the last film they put out was Rise of Skywalker, which, while I may have enjoyed... See, I'm just enjoying all the films I've been saying. I may have enjoyed Rise of Skywalker because I like those characters. Not many... Most people didn't like that film, and I think Lucasfilm kind of has a bad stench in everybody's mouth. They need to have a real win here, and they were hoping it was going to be this. Kathleen Kennedy was hoping hoping Indiana Jones' Dow Destiny would have been like a great send-off to her tenure at Lucasfilm, which she might say she might not. But it doesn't look like that's going to be a great finale to her experience at Lucasfilm. Um, also, the early reviews were really bad coming out of Kane's. And then people targeting the film online didn't help where they're trying to say it's woke. Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character is going to be all woke and stuff. Ignore it. Any, anytime someone uses the word woke when describing the movie, just ignore that. And focus on the actual constructive criticism where they're actually talking about the content of the film. Not about whether or not a woman's in it. Just ignore that. But the early reviews coming out of Cannes, very respectable audience really dimmed a lot of people's hopes that this would be like a great finale for the Indiana Jones franchise, which I, a lot of people don't think it is. Younger people aren't just, also younger people aren't into, into, into Indiana Jones as much as the older people. I think it was almost over 50% of people were over 40 that went to go see this movie. And there was a lot of old people, a lot of old people in my crowd when I went to see it. They just didn't make this appeal to younger moviegoers like Top Gun Maverick did last year. A lot of young people went and saw that film, even though that's more of an older generation type of thing. Audiences were just not demanding a fifth Indiana Jones film, and especially one that was budgeted at $325 million. It was budgeted for perfection, and this film was not ever going to get it had to make it's it's probably gonna have to make eight hundred and nine hundred million dollars to break even, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's probably in the same boat as fast as Fast X, which is not probably gonna make money. It just Hollywood, get your budgets in check. There had to be money laundering there. I don't understand how this cost $330 million. You don't see it on screen. You don't. And I just, I don't get it. I think the first, the first Indiana Jones Raiders Lost Ark adjusted for inflation cost about $60 million. So they tried to keep it, as I said, they tried to keep it at least below 150 or maybe even 100. I think, I don't think Indiana Jones needs to be super huge budget. Pay Harrison Ford and do some great action set pieces while just 
giving a fun a fun vibe. You don't need to spend an obscene amount of money on this franchise. Although there is no competition next week, uh, this or this week, Insidious and Joyride are the only films that open it up. Those have completely, complete different graphics. That demographics. It's a horror film. That's a comedy, but R-rated comedy. This is an action adventure family film. So I, it, I think it could hold well, even though it has that B plus cinema score. I think it come in the high forties, maybe low fifties. I could see that. Hopefully it does, because I want movies to make money so we can get more. But the way they have them budgeted right now, no films can can, can succeed. Also, older moviegoers are slower to come out and see movies. So hopefully that means that longer run, this will play out longer. And then it'll also keep its premium screens. As I said, the competition this week isn't taking those premium screens. The IMAXs, the Dolby's, they have to wait. Competition starts again on Tuesday when Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning takes all those screens from it. And it targets that same exact audience, that older demographic. So it's going to have trouble competing with Mission Impossible, which is having rave reviews, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It needs to make a lot more money, but I don't see this movie ever, ever making money for the studio or even breaking even. So, But for the other box office news, yeah, Barbie versus Oppenheimer. Early box office tracking has come online for the showdown of the century. Barbie looks to win the weekend with an 80 to $100 million debut. Ticket sales right now are on par with The Little Mermaid, and The Little Mermaid opened with $95 million over the three days, so it looks... $80 million is like the, the lowest it's scheduled to open. So it could it could get over 100 over the three day, which I think it will. With Based on how much publicity I've seen for this movie everywhere, I think it will. I think they're going to get a lot, a lot of buzz out of this film. And the marketing, as I said, been amazing for this film. They did the Barbie Mansion in LA. That was so cool. And they also, they elite the AMC popcorn bucket, which is a Barbie car. We put like the Fast X one, the Fast X one, which I have right here. It's like this, but it's a Barbie car, and I'm going to put them right next to each other, and I'm very excited to get that thing. Also, they have that Ice Spice and Nicki Minaj's Barbie Girl song, which was everywhere for a second. So, yeah, Barbie is killing it on the marketing, and they are going to get rewarded for it because I think they also made a pretty good movie word by of the creators behind it and the marketing. It was just they are knocking out of the park. First knockout of the parks, at least I don't want to jinx it, for Warner Brothers this year after their abysmal Shazam and Flash floppings. Evil Dead Rise did good, but that's a very smaller film and not they, they made a ton of money on that, but not as much where like Barbie is going to make a ton of money. Um, the other film that is going against, as I said, Oppenheimer is looking at a 40 to $50 million opening. It's similar. It's very going to be very similar to box, similar box office performance to Dunkirk, which was Christopher Nolan's prior film before Tenet. So it was this two movies ago. He did the world war two film and that had a 50 million opening and that legged out, I think 179 million domestic. So I think, Oppenheimer could leg out too. This is a much more adult film. It's rated R and it's being sold by Christopher Nolan alone. It may be a little bit of Matt Damon because they put Matt Damon in a lot of the trailers. So I think they're selling it with Christopher Nolan and Matt Damon at this point. Um, IMAX screenings are selling out though. And Barbie has, Barbie has one Dolby screening in the afternoon. So it is going to be dragged down by not having any premium format screens because Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible are taking them all, which I think is just ridiculous because Barbie is probably going to perform the best out of all of them. And uh, just, it just makes me angry. I think they just, they need to build more premium format screens. I don't understand. I don't have anywhere within an hour of me, which is absolutely ridiculous. You need to build more. If you give the cinema goers a premium experience, they will pay a premium and they will want to come back. Add recliners. My mother, whenever I tell her a movie's three hours long, she's like, I'll go if they have recliners and they don't have recliners anywhere near us. So she doesn't go. <laughs> so they need to, they need to do that. And then they can charge more and then they can make more money. See, see Hollywood. It's right in front of your face. Get your budgets better. Theater owners, make your theaters better. Don't play 30 minutes of trailers too. 
Also, word of advice. So, yeah, I think the budget of both these films is about $100 million, Barbie and Oppenheimer. So, I think both of these films will make loads of money in the long run for studios because they kept them well budgeted. I'm doing a double feature, and I am driving over an hour to go see it in a good theater. And then I'm actually there for Oppenheimer, and then I think just a regular screening for Barbie, which sucks that they don't have a Dolby screening there either. The nearest Dolby is three hours away, by the way, to me, which is absolutely ridiculous. My local theater isn't even playing Barbie until 7.15. Everywhere else, the screening started at 3 o'clock. I just, I've ranted about it before to them, but it's ridiculous. And, oh, uh, can they just run movie theaters? It's not that hard to run a movie theater. I could probably do it for them. I I want to offer it. Just let me run it for a month and I can fix this whole thing up. Uh, but yeah, so I just, Barbie, Barbenheimer, Showdown on the Century. I'm very excited. And they both of them look to do very well. And then someone else who's seen Barbenheimer is Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie. There's rumor, there was rumors about Tom Cruise being mad about losing premium screens to Christopher Nolan. But he is spinning the narrative on that story, and he took a pick in front of Barbie, Oppenheimer, Indiana Jones, Dow Destiny, him and the director of Mission Impossible. And he's like, go out and see the movies. And then Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig, the director of Barbie, they did the same thing and said Mission Accepted. And they did that in front of Oppenheimer, Indiana Jones, and Mission Impossible. So I think it's it's just so cool. And I hope this gets more people to see out, go out and see those movies. So I can't wait of my double feature of Barbie and Oppenheimer. And sticking with the Tom Cruise news, I want to rank all the Mission Impossible movies before the new one comes out. So I'm going to rank them least to best. I just binge watched all these movies over the past like three days. I I've crammed them in. I found time and I, they kind of grain, they kind of drained my energy and they, they definitely hurt my subconscious. I think watching this many mission impossible movies in a row, seeing that much of Tom Cruise face that much. It's just, it's very hard on a person's being, but so least to best, I want to start off with mission impossible Two. This movie is so bad, it's good, though. I still have to put it at the bottom because it's bad, but I also, this is the film I think I would rewatch the first because it was just insane. It has everything a cheesy 2000s film should. I thought I was watching Spy Kids for a second. It was that cheesy with the glasses and him throwing off the glasses that explode and the style of glasses everyone's wearing. I'm like, what is happening? And then Ethan Hunt's hair, the long hair, it just, it looks so awful. It's so amazing. And then the action scenes really sucked, except for any time Ethan did, this is the only film he did it for, where he did like the scissor kicks and did karate and stuff like that. I was laughing so hard, especially when the slow-mo, because you see his glasses on, you see his hair flowing in the wind, and you see him kick this guy in the face while he's upside down. Oh, it was pure cinema, pure Tom Cruise right there. It was, it was this, I think this was when it came out when he was still, I mean, he still is crazy, but when he was really crazy, oh. It just had me laughing on the floor when it wasn't supposed to. Absolutely awful villain, though, where they were trying to do, like, that anti-Ethan Hunt thing. Didn't work. But my one of my favorite things, non-ironically, my <laughs> unironically, my favorite scene of the movie was when Ethan Hunt disguised himself as his henchman and the villain guy shot his henchman as Ethan ran away. That was good. Unironically, that was good. That was the only good part of the movie. Oh, and Luther. Luther's always great in any of these movies. But other than that, this movie is just... Just, I'm telling you, if you're going to watch a Mission Impossible movie with your friends, turn on this one because you will be laughing so much. And this is the, this says a lot. This is the only film in the Mission Impossible franchise that they did not ask for the director of this one to come back for the sequel like they did every single other film. So yeah, they know, Tom Cruise knows this is a bad one. And then for my second least or fifth best, however, if optimists are pessimistic about it. So number five will have to be Mission Impossible Uno. From 1996, it was it was just really boring. It was very hard to get through. I had it tried so hard to keep focus on what was happening. Um, the scenes, the scene that everyone does parody though, the heist when they do the wires and the 
the lightning beams, whatever you call it, the, the wires. I don't know, what is it called? The red beams, something like the lasers. I don't know, I couldn't think there were lasers. Lasers are best used in Ocean's 12, by the way, but the lasers here, all that whole scene that they parried, parodied with his sweat dripping down, that was a excellent scene. And the highlight of the film, I was on the edge of my seat for just that one scene. Other than that, it was kind of boring. I love Luther though. He's my 100% my favorite. He's the best part of any of these movies. And he's even, he's in four for like two seconds. Best part of that film. 100%. I love Luther. The infight on the train with the helicopter was pretty thrilling too. And I'm mostly impressed with how they, how the wind caught them and how they filmed that. I think they did it where they like dropped them and then like a skydive scenario thing. I'm not sure exactly how they do it. It looked so real, even though I know they didn't do it for real because it looked like blue screen in the background. The wind hitting them looked really cool. It's just a film whose plot I've seen everywhere else, which no, no fault of them because everybody has copied it to death. But seeing it as I have seen this before, I knew exactly where it was going. And I felt just like, oh, I know exactly what's happening. I don't have to pay attention because people have stolen it, yes, but I still wasn't particularly captivated. Um, so number four will have to be Mission Impossible Rogue, Rogue Nation. Sorry, these names are so awful. <laughs> Rogue Nation, which is the fifth in the Mission Impossible franchise. I don't remember honestly much about this because I knocked out three movies in one day. I watched Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout back to back to back. And then since this one's in the middle, I kind of remember it the least. Um, I the plane scene, which I was like, oh, the, okay, the plane scene is what they're going to be the, like, the climax of this film because that's the only thing I knew about this one was the plane scene. And I was like, oh, they did it in the first five minutes of the movie. It's so cool. I think that's the best stunt he's done so far, like ever, is that plane scene because that just looks horrifying. And that was great. The opera scene was really good too. And Rebecca Ferguson, I am so glad she's stuck around for three films now because she's a great find for this franchise and she fits extremely well. She has great chemistry with Tom Cruise and I love her role in this. I love her role. Um, the villains sucked and it was more a pay pay. Uh, it was more setting up stuff for the future in the next film. So I like that they kept the villain around for the fifth and sixth movie because he sucked in the fifth one, but they were used all those bad character traits to make him actually a good character in the sixth one. It also didn't have a climactic finish there though. It kind of just ended with him capturing the villain and there wasn't really a big final set piece, which I think was very awfully constructed. Maybe you would have saved the plane scene for the last part of the film. I don't know. It just, not good. Um, I did like Alec Baldwin's role here, and I like him in set five and six. He was pretty good there in Rogue Nation and Fallout. He was pretty good there. Uh, so it felt like this one was really, really bland, but a good launching point for a sequel. So next up, the third best, I think, is Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which is the one with Jeremy Renner. Even though Jeremy Renner's in, in Rogue Nation, this is the one everybody remembers. Oh, this is the Brad Bird one with Jeremy Renner in it. Um, I heard two is the worst, and... They all get sub better subsequently, but after watching Mission Impossible 3, I was let down by this one. Jeremy Renner, Jer 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 Renner, Jeremy Renner does not fit in this franchise. I don't like the girl they have in this one either. Thank God they stopped switching out the girls in every movie. And last movie, the girls, this one had Maggie Q and his wife were so great. That was in Mission Impossible 3, and then you go to this one. I don't remember the girl in this one. I have I don't remember any single character trait about her other than she kicked a lady out of skyscraper, which was pretty. I was like, oh, okay, I like you. But she didn't, she didn't stand out at all, and I just hate that they just keep they keep all the male members of the team, but they don't bring over any of the female members. I would have kept Maggie Q. Maggie Q, please come back to this franchise. I loved you in I loved you in three. Please. Um, I'm also not the biggest fan of Simon Pegg, and this is where he starts to stay around. And I I, I don't know Simon Pegg. This is my dude. Luther is my dude, though. I love Luther. Don't ever. I'll lose all these other members. Ethan Hunt can't even lose her. Just make a Luther movie. I love Luther. <laughs> the villain also was just worse. He was just the worst. And he didn't even, he was just, a, like, just, I think he was Russian. I think, well, at least he had Russian nuclear codes. But just boring. And I loved when he killed himself, though. That was, that caught me off guard. And I let out, I started laughing when he, he, was, he killed himself to get the briefcase away from Ethan. Oh, it was so funny. And then the look on Ethan's face, it was great. And that whole car vending machine fight where there's just, 
brutally hurting themselves. Oh, it was so funny. I loved it. It was a highlighted film besides Luther. And what they sold with, what they sold the film with though, was the Dubai stuff. So that was kind of the stuff I was familiar with. But here's where they got the crazy stunts, where we started to do the crazy stunts, where they did, they did the climbing up the side of the skyscraper for real. But the running meme, that the running of Tom Cruise as a storm cloud comes in, I thought that was in Mummy, because that's a meme everywhere now. And when I got to see this film, the look, on, I had so much joy in my face when I realized, oh, he's about to do the running stuff. <laughs> I just, he, him running is so funny to me for some reason. But then they do the running, and then he gets in the car chase to the sand as he's driving into him. Oh, I found it so thrilling. It was so much more thrilling than the climbing stuff because I've seen all that stuff pretty familiar with. So yeah, I was pretty let down by this one, even though it still had its pride moments. But when I went from, I think all those films, I kind of disliked the one or two, one, five, and four. I don't think I liked any of those ones. But the ones that I started to actually really, really enjoy was Mission Impossible 3. I actually really, really liked this one. It was the best team assembled so far with Maggie Q, Luther, and then that other dude. I don't remember that dude, but Maggie Q and Luther, you got gold there, baby. Um, the best villain in the entire franchise though, was Philip Seymour Hoffman. May he rest in peace. He was actually posing a threat, and they did the weird. They did the intro with him where it cut to the end of the film. He was so menacing. I loved him. I loved him. He was great. And then the bridge fight was awesome. I think the highlight action scene of the movie when Ethan they shoot a rocket and it blows up and he gets slammed into the other car. That felt very visceral, and I really like the realness of it. The, Carrie Russell's also in here, which I had no idea she was part of this franchise, but she's. She's only in like 10 minutes of it. And I was like, oh, there's Carrie Russell. Oh, oh, she's not in this movie anymore. I'll just leave it at that. But I love when he deflects against his own corrupt agency. When he goes rogue, even though he goes rogue in every movie. But when he really goes rogue and he has to fight against the people, then it gets interesting. He goes rogue in pretty sure every single movie at this point. But when he goes rogue and actually has to like fight the CIA agents and stuff, that's good. That's good. And Lawrence Fishburne as the head of Mission Impossible, the Impossible Mission Force. Oh my God, it's so stupid, the name. When they said IMF, I was like, intermolecular forces from chemistry? No, <laughs> it's even worse. <laughs> I, the, the name is so stupid. But I really like him here. Anthony Hopkins, I think, played the leader in one. And then you have Lawrence Fishburne. And they, I like how they only do it for one film. Alec Baldwin did it for two. Actually, no, he was CIA for one film, then Mission Impossible for one. So I'm pretty sure everybody, and actually, if you play the leader of the Mission Impossible Force, you only get one movie. That's all you get. <laughs> but I was just thrilled by this movie. And I love what I'm, I love, that's what I'm looking at here. It's not Mission, what did I write? It's not Mission Gobbledygook, but a thrilling film that's tight and has good action. And so that is my second favorite. But my favorite of the entire franchise, I think, is almost everybody's favorite. So, but it's Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth film in the franchise. This is by far the best one, even though I wasn't expecting much out of three, but I was expecting stuff out of this one and it delivered what I was expecting out of it. Ethan, Luther, Elsa, who's Rebecca Ferguson's character, and then Henry Cavill added here. So those were all great. And then as you had, you have that bathroom fight scene. That was awesome. You have the skydive, the, and there's a specific halo jump, the halo jump. That was cool. The Rome chase went on for way longer than I thought it would. And then the helicopter fight scene at the end with the nuke bombs. Oh, it was, it was very well constructed very well paced where there was an action scene and it kept the audience enthralled between the exposition and then the action. So I thought it was great. Also, I love to see that we got to see his wife, Julia from mission Impossible three return here because I love mission Impossible three. She was in mission Impossible three. I got to see her again. Oh, that's great. Bring back Maggie Q, please bring back Maggie Q. It's an excellently constructed movie and they did new things I hadn't seen before. Unlike the first one, which I've seen all that stuff before. Um, we also had the Alec Baldwin who I think was great here. And then Angela Bassett who isn't doing too much, but it's always fun to see Angela Bassett. The villain was so much better, and he was almost up to Philip Seymour Hoffman in Mission Impossible 3 standards. 
but that's also because he had got to build off of that last movie. But I think the coolest thing with the villain in this movie was when they threw the truck in the water and you see the water slowly come up over him. That shot just looks so cool. I think that made me like the villain more. But honestly, none of the Mission Impossible villains are that crazy cool. But we also had Henry Cavill kind of turn into a villain, so I got to give the edge to this. Even though Philip Seymour Hoffman I like more, but this one had Henry Cavill as a villain, so that was cool too. Um, I really enjoy, really, really enjoy this one. It's probably the only one that I truly loved. And I still don't like the White, the White Widow stuff, and they kind of overcomplicated the plot, so I still have some of my negatives for the film. But hopefully they can build off this one to make an excellent Mission Impossible 7. So my final rankings are last place, Mission Impossible 2. Number five, Mission Impossible 1. Number three, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Number, no, excuse me, number three. Oh my gosh, it's getting confusing, these stupid names. So let me start over with that again. The least favorite, Mission Impossible 2. Then going from there, Mission Impossible 1, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Mission Impossible 3, with my favorite being Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh my gosh, I did it. There are, these names are almost as bad as the Fast and Furious franchise. They're just It gets very confusing very, very quick when you start jumbling these numbers together. And so I'm very, very, growing very, very excited for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which right now has a 90, I think 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is higher than all the, every single film before in this franchise. And that's saying a lot, because the last four films all have above 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, and Mission Impossible Fallout has a 97%. So Dead Reckoning came even higher than that with 98 So I thought that was great. The reviews, many think this is one of the best, best action films ever. They have perfected the Mission Impossible film, they say. They say the train and room sequence are great. Everyone is raving, and it's making me very excited, and I'm going to see it early on Wednesday, on Monday. I'm very, very, very excited. So that's it for the Mission Impossible news. Now I want to talk about Secret Invasion, Episode 3, a show that I really did not like the first episode, but I really, really liked the second episode. And Episode 3 kind of comes in the middle for me in between the first second. It's not as good as the second, but it's not as bad as the first. So it's kind of in the middle of those two range. Um, the stuff with Talos was great. Everything else? Um, they shortened the. Mar I forgot to mention this though that they shortened the Marvel intro now. Usually they play they used to play like forty five seconds the forty five second Marvel intro in front of every start of every single Marvel TV show, which was so annoying. And thank you, they actually did something good here and they shortened the Marvel intro while also shortening the episode. I realized that the, the first two episodes were about an hour long. This one was about forty minutes long, which was absolutely ridiculous how short it is. We get our Super Scrolls tease here. Someone actually uses their powers, even though they use it very cheaply, and they just heal one wound. And it's like oh. Oh, oh, Super Scrolls. Oh, that's it. That's it. So I think they could have done so much. I, they must be saving it, but still, they're just still, they're still, still teasing it. Nick Fury's wife, we get a little bit more in her here. We get a little flashback with her and Nick, but she's working for Gravik and then not much charisma. She's mad Fury left her for five years and she betrayed him and stuff and she might kill him, but I, I really don't care about Fury, Nick Fury's wife. She doesn't, she didn't particularly jump out to me. I'd rather focus on the characters I care about and she's, it's hard to grow to care for a character when you only have a certain amount of screen time with them and there's not much screen time on the show. So yeah. Also it came out that Rhodey, I think Rhodey's a scroll based on the developments of this. Oh, I forgot to mention, we are talking spoilers. I should have mentioned that off the top, but we are talking spoilers for Secret Invasion episode three. Let me just say that before I get, get all into this, but Rhodey's most likely a scroll. I wonder for how long, um, that's cool development, but I, I hope it doesn't, I hope these scroll developments don't like counteract the character development we've got within the past. Although Rhodey hasn't got much character development. Let me never mind then. Rhodey hasn't really got much character development. But I love major players being revealed to be scrolls. So and he's kind of a major player. I mean, he will be after he gets his own movie. He's gonna have Armor Wars, which is said to come out in June 2025. That rumor came on board after Fantastic Four Ironheart's supposed to show up in that, along with other past Iron Man characters, and Secret Invasion should lead in that. So maybe 
I think we're going to get a lot more with Rhodey in the series than initially I thought we were. Um, Talos, he gets really good here. This is where the show gets good. Talos meeting with Gravik. Oh, it's great. Gravik sucks when he's just talking to his supporters. Like when it's just surrounded by Gravik and the other scrolls and the Clark, it's just so bland. But when he starts talking to Talos or Olivia Coleman's character, ooh, ooh, it's great. Firing on cylinders. It's great when he's talking to the opposition. I love when Talos just stabs his hand. I was like, yeah. Just stab him in the face next time, would you please? And then they, the shapeshifters around him all shape into Gravik. So it's like, were you even talking to Gravik? I don't know. And they're showing very intimidated that they have people everywhere. Um, the leaders fighting with soldiers saying that whole commentary about the World War One that Gravik is willing to sacrifice others. It's very brave of him to sacrifice others. Very, very brave. Um, and then Amelia Clark betrays Gravik here, which we knew she would because she kind of already did, but kind of didn't. She's very bland on the show. But it's what a waste if she's dead if he killed her, but I don't know. Amelia Clark is just a great actress. I love her in Game of Thrones. She's just so great there. And when she got cast in a Marvel show, I was like, oh, she's going to get to do something more. She's going to get something new great again. And I'm so happy for her. But she's not really doing anything in the show yet. And it's, it's making me very angry. Um, and also the trailers, I think, gave it away that she's still back. At least those are at least if those aren't flashbacks. But they're doing the same thing I ranted about Bumblebee with, where they showed off a dead character later on in the trailers. And it's just absolutely ridiculous. I don't understand the marketing people can't get it together. And then also they sh they're showing off Nick Fury in the Marvels too. So but so we know he survives the show, which stop doing that, please. You don't have to do that. Nick Fury is not a huge selling point of that movie. And you can cut out some of the Amelia Clark later on in the in the trailers. Like it's not that hard to do. And then Talos and Fury, they've mended up their their little broken friendships in the last episode. And Talos finally stands up for himself, finally stops being a little wuss, and they stop World War Three from starting. I love the back and forth between Fury and Talos about whether or not to kill the Senate guy or whatever, the head of the nukes. And I love that Talos actually kills him when guys, I was like, oh, Talos, you did something. Thank you. Thank you. Stop, stop being a wuss and actually get stuff done. And he did. Um, there was also some stupid people running that nuclear ship. I was like, oh, these people, I mean, it sounds about right. Stupid people running the governments and running the world and controlling the fate of humanity. Um, and then Olivia Coleman shows up, but she's just for a little bit. I want her more in the show. When she first showed up, she was great. And she's only in like, five minutes of each episode. If you're going to get Olivia Coleman, give Olivia Coleman something to do because every scene she's in is great. And I don't understand what we were doing with her character. It's just absolutely absurd. It makes me very upset. Um, Tal I want this show to be Talos, Nick Fury, and Olivia Coleman teaming up together. I don't care about Nick Fury's wife, nor the stuff involving the Skrull Uprising when it doesn't involve our heroes. Like that can mean, I don't know. The development we're getting for them, it's just very boring and I don't like it. And I wish we could follow the characters I actually do like. I loved everything to do with Talos' episode, I said, but this is a major step back from episode two. It's also a short episode, I said, 40 minutes compared to the hour of the first two. They did this with Mandalorian 2, where they show the press the first two ones that are really long, and then they, like, oh, the next one's only 30 minutes. There's a, I wonder why we didn't show this one to press. It's just, it's ridiculous. I may, maybe they're trying to do it a little more prestige, and they're like, oh, we, we only did two hour long episodes, and maybe the finale, but it's just, I don't understand. You, I don't understand. We're halfway through. There's a six episode series, but halfway through, and I have no idea how this could all be wrapped up. After my high of last week, I am brought back down to earth as to how this could wrap up satisfyingly, but we'll see. Let's see with the Marvel news. I just want to address that Benedict Cumberbatch. Something that will make me happy about Marvel news, the Benedict Cumberbatch says he's he has a Marvel caper next year, and it's, he says he will return as Doctor Strange, but does that mean shooting next year, or does that mean it's a movie releasing next year? So that could mean Devil 3, which we just got our first look at the costume. Looks like Deadpool. Captain America, New World Order, or Brave New World, and then Thunderbolts. I don't see him shop popping up in any of those except for Deadpool, which I don't think he's going to film that quick. So he could be in Blade, Fantastic Four, Avengers 5, Avengers 6, Armor Wars, anything. We don't know Doctor Strange 3. Who knows? Unannounced project. But I just wanted to like throw that in after my rants about Marvel and how I didn't like this episode of Secret Evasion. Well, I'm mixed on it. But 
Benedict Cumberbatch, Doctor Strange is one of the things I absolutely adore about the MCU and everything he's in. So I just want to throw that, give myself a little bit of hope for the Marvel future. So yeah. And so as for coming this next week, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning debuts part one, excuse me, part one. And after binge watching Mission Impossible movies, I think I need a good couple of days break before I go see this movie. But we are seeing an early screening on Monday. I'm driving an hour right after work and then i have to work the next day early in the morning so i'm committed i'm committed and hopefully i think i might have lily our guest on from our joyride review that's up there make sure to check that out i think i might have her come on for that too so expect the review out tuesday morning so and of course seeing it all next friday we'll have talk secret invasion episode four i'll give an like a more mission impossible talk and any more news that breaks over this coming week so yeah Thank you all for listening so much. Let me know. Let me know what you think of Secret Invasion. Let me know what you think of Insidious Red Door. Let me know what you think of Joyride. There's just so much stuff coming out right now. I love that we're actually getting a ton of stuff to talk and spread our joy about movies. At. Joy of the movies and TV and communal experiences. Ah, oh, I just love it. It just makes me happy, even if I don't love the products themselves. It makes me happy. So, yeah. Thank you all for listening. Check you all out later. Bye-bye.